Well, good morning and welcome one more time. My name is Dirk, preaching pastor here at Encounter Church. And I have to start off by giving a quick plug to next week we begin a brand new series here at church called In the Mess. Um, I think one of the reasons why this series is going to be so incredibly important is because so many of us have believed a, uh, a mistruth uh, that the Christian life is about, is about clean living, is about straight lines. When the story that God tells, especially in the, in the book of Genesis and the Bible, especially through the, the person Jacob, is anything but. It, it's a messy story. But, but the thing is, God doesn't walk around the mess. Uh, God doesn't avoid the mess. He, he jumps into it. And so we're going to spend a little while looking at, at how God is found in the mess and how grace is found in the mess. All right, check that out. Next week it begins. This morning, though, we put the exclamation point on this series called I Quit. Hopefully by now in the series, we're all uh, quitting something in order to more fully follow after Jesus. Um, this morning, though, I want to share with you a, a picture of, uh, of my son. Uh, this is Colin. He's hiding. He's, he's four years old, I think, in the picture. You might not be able to see him. Before you start uh, questioning my, parents, my parenting too much uh, and putting my son in a, a Florida ceiling pink bedroom, uh, you should know he's hiding under the bed so that he can most likely terrify his older sister when she comes into the room. Uh, but possibly also, this is about a year ago, so I can't remember, because he's playing hide-and-seek. Uh, this is a game that obviously kids love to play. It starts off with peekaboo, which is really just a, a simple form of hide-and-seek because the kids don't think that if they, can, they can't see you, then you can't see them. Uh, and then as they get older, they start hiding under furniture. But, but like what in the picture shows us, he's, he's really, I'm going to say he's not a very good hider. Right? And it's not because he, he's not very good at it necessarily. It's, it's because he doesn't want to be a very good hider. When he has a good spot picked out, like under his sister's bed, he scooches to the very, very front so that everybody can see him. Um, when, he, when he hides other places in the house and he goes behind maybe a couch or something like that, um, he doesn't go all the way behind the couch. He leaves his, his bottom half hanging out. He leaves his, his feet and ankles hanging out so that when I walk by and call his name, hey, Colin, you know, where are you? And he starts to giggle uncontrollably. <laughs> it's because he really wants to be found. Contrast that with how I play hide and seek. When I play hide and seek, I don't want to be found. I'm good. I'm ridiculously good at hiding seek, hide and seek. In my house, I hide. Don't, don't tell them. They're in kids' men right now. But in my house, I like to go down to the basement utility room behind the furnace and hide and the breakers right there so I can flip the lights off in the entire house. They have never found me yet. Mostly because they just sit and, and cry because they have no idea what happened. <laughs> but I think like the contrast between how we plays, it really highlights like this stark difference between kids and adults, right? And that's, and that's what, we're, what we're picking it up this morning. Because at kids, we play a game called hide and seek. As adults, we just play a game called hide. Some of you might not know this because like you come to encounter church. And, you know, this church is, is you know, it, it is what it is. You know, you've been here, you know this place. If you're just checking it out, this is, this is what it's all about. And so some people, like, look at, at somebody like me and they go, hey, you know, you started Encounter Church in your living room uh, about seven and a half years ago. Like, this vision that you had for church is kind of, like, that's amazing. You must have known this all the time, right? <laughs> and I hide 
the fact that the truth is, I have no idea how we got here. Better put probably, I have no idea how in the world and why God brought us here. You see, in, in seminary, some of you would be surprised to hear this. When I was in pastor training school, seminary, just after college, like I was the guy who would wear, uh, who would wear dress shirts and tuck, tuck them in. And on Fridays and usually one or two other days out of the week, I would even wear a tie. Me, a tie. I wear a tie on Easter and I get like 50 comments about it. Okay, because you know, like I'm not that guy, but, but I'm hiding. In school, I'm hiding. I'm just trying to figure out why in the world I'm here, what I can do here. And so I'm trying to just blend in like some of the more successful people around me. I'm not playing a game hide and seek because I don't actually want to be found. I'm just playing hide. And so this morning, some of you, some of us are hiding something or we're hiding from something. And I don't know what it is that the thing is that you're hiding but I think if we're honest with ourselves and if we're real with ourselves and, and better put probably honest and real with God, we would admit that what, what we're hiding is an eating disorder or what we're hiding is an addiction or what we're hiding is something more than just a regular habit. What we're, what we're hiding is, is structural cracks in our marriage. What we're hiding is a, is a strained extended family relationship and it, Holidays, Mother's Day, like tends to ramp up that pressure and then expose some of those cracks. Some of us, what we're hiding is a mountain of debt or a poor financial decision. We would like no one to ever seek us out over and find us and find us out. Because like I said, we're not playing a game of hide and seek. We're just playing the game hide. And like a couple of problems that come immediately to mind from that is that so long as we continue to hide and not be found out, so long as we continue to present the world this perfectly curated vision of the life that we wished we had, we can't ever be known for who we are. We can't ever be loved or cared about for who we are. Worse than any of that, I think, is that our relationship with God is strained because, because so long as we're hiding and not wanting to be found out, so long as we're hiding, is that God isn't going to bless. God isn't going, can't possibly bless the person that we're pretending to be. And so this morning, we're going we're gonna to admit together, we're going to see, a, and we're going to hear a story together about hiding. We're going to hear that we hide and God seeks. In fact, more than that, God is relentlessly seeking each one of us, each one of you out from hiding. We're going to go to this story, I want to tell you, from Genesis chapter 3. There's Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. The words are also going to be on the screen behind me. And we're going to go to Genesis 3. And it starts off in, verse, or in chapters 1 and 2 uh, with the creation story. In chapter 1, God creates the heavens and the earth, everything in it, all this stuff. Genesis 2, it's like he focuses right in on his two crowning jewels of creation, humanity, Adam and Eve. And he creates these two individuals, right? And, and they're, they're said to be images of God, probably how they love, probably how they think, probably how they do community, they do life together, as we say, one of our values around here. And, and he puts these two as, as his crowning jewel over all creation. And the very last verse from Genesis chapter two, kind of the verse that, that caps off the creation story and then begins the story of descent, what we sometimes call in the church the, the fall, 
The very last line of the creation story is Genesis 2, verse 25. It says that Adam and Eve, they were naked and yet they felt no shame. And I just got a feeling that in a sermon about hiding, that line might be important to us later. So hang on to it. Genesis 3, it starts off, and we're gonna, we're gonna kind of go right through the story here. In Genesis 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord had made. He said, the serpent said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden. Did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Um, there's a lot of things that drive us into hiding. And I think this question that the serpent that the devil asked Eve is, is one of the top ones. Did God really say, did he really say it? I, I love like what he's doing here, right? He's just planting that seed of doubt and, and just watching as to like what it's going to grow into. The serpent is just injecting, not a big one, but just a small wedge of doubt between Eve and God and just watching as, as she, like, like a splinter or a beast thing, just drives further and further and it, and it can't get plucked out and it drives this painful wedge in between her and God. Question, church. If the serpent did that to her, do you think he might do it to you? And how often do we think about that reality? That there's like this wedge, just a seed and watching as it, as it grows into something bigger. Now, the doubt that I'm talking about is a specific kind of doubt that drives her into hiding because it also says, did, he says, did God really? Now, it's so subtle that we like skip over it. But up till this point in the Bible, every single time that God is referenced, without exception, it's the word Lord God. The Lord God made the heavens and the earth. The Lord God made the skies. The Lord God. If you're reading it in a Bible, like, uh, like the version of the Bible, the translation we've got in your chairs, by the way, you can take those home. We, you, people steal those every week and we love it. Um, but this version of the Bible, if you read it through, it, it actually puts that word Lord in small letters, but they're all capitalized, L-O-R-D. And then God is, is capital G, uh, O-D. Now this is uh, it's, it's kind of in the weeds here, but I think the significance of this on our, on our Mondays is going to be huge uh, because what the title Lord God actually means is the word God is a Hebrew word Elohim, which is simply a title. Uh, it's a CEO, a controller, accountant, it's pastor, uh, it's sales clerk. It's a, it's a title, God, Elohim. The word Lord, L-O-R-D, especially when it's written in a lot of Bibles as that all caps, small, version of the word Lord, it's the word, it's, it's not actually pronounceable because it doesn't have any vowels in it as it was written because it was so holy. But, but, but we say so today something like Yahweh. It's a, it's a proper name. In fact, it's, it's the divine name. It's not just a title, uh, CEO or sales clerk or pastor. It's a name, Dirk, Bob, Adam, Eve. Sarah. <laughs> you see, the significance of this and what makes this story so unique in the ancient world and especially today is, is because God doesn't just claim for himself a title. I'm the creator. I'm God. I'm all-knowing. I'm all-powerful. But he also wants himself to be known. He wants you to know him. And so he gives you his own name. Call me Yahweh. 
And so up till this point in the story, God isn't just this all-powerful deity on the clouds. God is this, almost like this, this deity person who wants to be known by his creation. This, this deity who walks around with his creation, Adam and Eve, and who drinks coffee with them and, and, and goes for long walks with them and holds them hand in hand. Like the, the relationship of God and his creation cannot be separated until the serpent comes along. And for the first time we have in scripture, it's not, it's not Lord God, it's just God. And, and the wedge that's driven in there is the wedge to say, maybe he doesn't stop being God for you. Maybe you don't doubt that he's all powerful. Maybe you don't doubt that he's God. Maybe you doubt that he's good. And he wants to be known by you. And so he's still all powerful. He's still in the sky. He's still got a lightning bolt in one hand. Only he doesn't care about you. He doesn't love you. He wouldn't sacrifice for you, maybe some other people, but not you. And so that barb, and so that, that wedge of doubt is just driven in a little bit more. Maybe it's true that he doesn't care. And that doubt just pushes us that much more into hiding. That's not the only thing. Doubt isn't the only thing that pushes us into hiding. Verse two, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say we must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you'll die. You must not touch it. You have to really be paying attention uh, to what's going on in the story or read some books this week by somebody who is really paying attention to what's in the story uh, to pick up on exactly what's happening. But, but God never said that you must not touch it. He said, don't eat from the garden. He called it, uh, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge, not wisdom, knowledge of good and evil, or you'll die. But he never said anything about touching it. So when, so when Eve is talking to the serpent, she adds this part about, hey, like he said, he said, if I even touch it, like it's game over for me, that's it. That's, that's not what God said. Um, kids, I've got, I've got a little sermon illustration at home. I mean, I've got a daughter at home. And, uh, and one of the things, right, that when she has the neighbor kids over, as the whole squad up, you know, and they, and they go downstairs and they, and they play. And I didn't even know we had so much stuff until it was all evenly distributed in my basement. But like, I go down there, I'm like, what, what happened down here, right? And I say, um, kids, it's time for your friends to go home because there's a mess that's been made, right? And we got to clean this mess up and then kids have to go home, okay? And then my daughter, right, she gets, she gets so sad. And what does she do? It's something so human. You can tell that we're just not so far descendants from Adam and Eve. She, she takes what just happened and she goes to her mom. She goes to my wife and she says, dad told me that I can never have friends over again because I made a mess, Right? You laugh because you're, you're there. That's not what I said. Uh, I said the friends have to go home because there's a mess. You, you made a mess you weren't supposed to, right? And, and a judgment that she decided was overly harsh or overly strict, she kind of like magnifies the strictness when she's relaying it to other people. It is, it is so human. It is so human when a boss calls an employee in and says like, hey, we got to talk because you were late again. 
You know, anyway, yeah, it sets a bad example for everybody else. You know, it's just 10 minutes, I know, but, but you're late again. Like, you, you, what are we going to do so that you can arrive on time at your post at the starting point every single shift? And the employee walks out of that conversation and goes, you will not believe what that stuffed shirt just said about me. He said, if I'm late one more time, he's firing me. A judgment that we decide is overly harsh, gets magnified on strictness. What Eve is doing right now is she's saying, like, I don't know why, but he told me that I couldn't eat it. In fact, if I even touch it, I would die. Some of us have taken this message of Christianity and taken along with it the promise of heaven and the reality of hell. And have used that as ammunition to say, see, this judgment of God is so harsh. I'd never want to be in a relationship with him, with, with, with someone like that. And we magnify the strictness and we minimize the grace. And it drives us further and further into hiding away from God. Doubt drives us into hiding. Judgment of God drives us into hiding. Verse four, you will not, the serpent says, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. No, 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 you're not, you're not certainly going to die, at least not yet. I mean, the reality is this, this is kind of a true statement. It's kind of not true, but it's kind of true. At the same time, it wasn't the case that as soon as, spoiler alert, she eats it later on in Adam, it wasn't that they immediately dropped dead from it. No, no, they got to, they got to go on living for a little over 900 years after that point. It was the case that there was like a sentence put on them or this wedge between them and God, uh, death, but it wasn't just like immediately. And so maybe it wasn't lies, but it's like these, these half truths that we tend to believe that, that drive us away from God, that drive us into hiding. Again, that's not all. Verse six, when the woman saw that the fruit, now it's three things now, that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and probably the most important one, desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. It's Mother's Day, so I have to like get, help get women off the hook here a little bit in a story preaching about the fall on Mother's Day. It's dangerous territory, I understand. Um, we'll see who's back next week. Um, but what, this was news to me um, earlier, so I thought like, hey, I, you know, if this, I, I've got to pass it along to all of you. Um, what I had never before realized is that uh, Adam was right there with her. It says, Adam, who was with her? Now you could do some kind of jumping jacks around that and says, well, maybe he, maybe he just like joined her at this point, like the second half of the conversation and he wasn't really there for the whole temptation part or something like that. But, but every single time, this is interesting, every single time that the serpent says the word you, in the original language that it was written in, it was plural, uh, like, like use. You know, we don't, we don't have a plural you, although if you're in the South, if you're from the South, you do. It's y'all, right? So that when the serpent is, uh, is coming through, he says, y'all must not, I'm not sure, it's so ridiculous. <laughs> a serpent does not have a Southern accent, but to this morning he does. Um, 
y'all must not eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. Y'all must not touch it or you'll surely die, right? Like, that's kind of how it, how it goes. But there's, there's a couple of people in the room. So I just, I want to say, this, let's, not, let's not lump this all on Eve, okay? Adam is right there with her. Uh, the, the fruit, though, it's three things, right? It's pleasing to the eye. Um, it's, it's good for food. And it's probably that third thing, desirable for gaining wisdom. The thing that, like, tipped her over the edge, uh, tip them over the edge to say, yes, yes, no, 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 I need to have that. Now remember, God called, God called it knowledge of good and evil. God called it knowledge of evil, but for her, knowledge of evil wasn't good enough because she wanted like up close, firsthand knowledge, like wisdom of what this evil was like. You know, and some of you know people like that where you can tell them one thing, but unless they experience it for themselves, they will never be satisfied. And you want to spare them from all of the pain in this world of that firsthand knowledge. But they just they have to do it themselves. You can say to a kid, don't touch the stove. It's extremely hot. It'll hurt. It'll burn. But unless they hold their hand on it for a half second and experience that burn for two weeks, like they'll claim they don't have wisdom. On, on two things. One, on one hand, there's like this speed in which the whole story so far, three chapters of buildup, just like the floor drops out. In the language that this was written in, in Hebrew, it's eight words. The fall is just eight words long. And I just think like of the setup involved of, of all of creation and, and God placing everything. It's just exactly where he wants it to go. And some of you are, are scientists and you know infinitely more about this than I do. And you're like, look at this story and hear this story. And God, God spends countless amount of energy, like creating this thing exactly like he wants it to be. And in eight words, it like the whole thing unravels. Eight words. <laughs> A half second on the burner and two weeks of pain. Like you're going to spend a lifetime developing and strengthening the marriage. And it's like that one bad decision, that one night. Everything comes unraveled, never to be the same again. You can spend a lifetime building your reputation as an, one with integrity and one with honor. And it's that, it's that one post or it's that one text and everything comes unraveled. Never the same again. So Eve looks at this, and I'd say probably Adam along with it implied, and says, this fruit has something that I don't have. In fact, this fruit, there's something in here that I need. And, and it's interesting because she takes she takes that like inner satisfaction, right? That, that, that hole in her heart that God is so, and God alone is supposed to fill. And she takes that and like hands it over and says, no, 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 that inner happiness or, or satisfaction, as we heard a few weeks ago, that contentment, I'm gonna hang that up on that fruit that's so desirable for gaining wisdom, right? Until, until I get that, then I'm never going to be content with what I have and who I am and whose I am. And we do that. You know, we, we, we do that. We call it something like 
envy, but, but like we, we take that contentment, that happiness, that satisfaction, that hole in our heart that only God can fill, and we put it on something external, and we say, if only God would give me that, if only I could achieve that, I'm not going to be happy, I'm not going to be content, I'll always be missing a part of me until that thing comes into my life. And until I get that thing, listen, I'll run away from every other thing that I probably should long after. And it's that envy that drives us further and further into hiding in the last, the biggest one, the most devastating one of all. Verse seven, after the fall, they realized, then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. And so they They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is a a sad part of the story, don't get me wrong, but I think within this, the authors are almost like telling a joke, right? Like seriously, fig leaves. Um, Fig leaves, although being the largest leaf available to Middle Easterners, the indentation and the easily uh, terrible material that fig leaves are made out of did not make them highly conducive towards clothing. It doesn't matter. The, the greater point is one to reflect off from. The crowning jewel of creation, the very, very last verse of the creation story before we started the descent into the fall in chapter three was that they were naked and they felt no shame and now they're naked and so they fo- sewed fig leaves together. The, impl- the clear implication as they experienced this thing that they had never, that humanity had never experienced before. It's, it's this thing called shame and it's, it's powerful. And in this awful twisted way, it's motivating. You see, in the church we talk about, we talk about three things often that separate us from God. In this church, we talk about them a lot. We talk about fear that separates us from God. We talk about guilt that separates us from God. And we talk about shame that separates us from God. I think the thing that makes shame so incredibly toxic is its remarkable ability to encapsulate our whole selves. So, so for example, uh, like guilt is often uh, something external. Uh, I did something wrong that I feel guilt over. And, and part of that is easily alleviated because we can at some point distance ourselves from our actions and say, I did something wrong, but that doesn't make me a wrong person. You can put it out there, own it, and, and you can receive forgiveness from that guilt. You, in a sense, you can't receive forgiveness from a shame because unlike guilt over something external, shame takes the external thing and makes it internal. So I don't, I don't feel shame over necessarily something that I did. That's guilt. But I experience the shame over what that says about who I am. Like I didn't do something wrong. That's guilt. I am a bad person. That's shame. Like, I didn't make a misjudgment in the past. I didn't lie in the past. I am a liar at heart. It's, it's who I am. And that shame of, of who we actually are, what makes that so incredibly motivating is I'm not just trying to, trying to hide something in my past. I'm not just trying to, trying to hide maybe something I've done, but I'm trying to hide the, the very fact of who I am from God. And that shame drives us into hiding that much more. 
that much more. But friends, don't forget that even though we play the game called hide, God is playing a game called seek. And he's not done in the story. He, he continues. We, we see what happens in verse 8. And then the man, he heard his wife, I'm, the man and his wife heard the sound. Now remember, the Lord God, as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called out to the man and he said, where are you? Where are you? I love that question, church, so much. Where are you? Because he doesn't say, where are you hiding? That has kind of this hint of an accusation to it. Why are you hiding? Where are you hiding? No, no, God just simply asked, church, where are you right now? He doesn't offer this command to come out out of hiding right now or else. He simply asks the question, where are you? It's almost like it's more of an invitation than anything else. Just please tell me where you are so that we can start to clean this thing up together. Tell me, church, where are you? In verse 10, and continuing on, and he answered, Adam answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid in verse 11. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, in one sentence, he throws God and all of the rest of humanity at that time under the bus. Uh, the woman you put here with me, uh, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. This is a bit off the point, but I'm going to say it anyway, is that Adam would continue to live another 930 years after that point. Do you really really want to start off that relationship by blaming your wife for the eternal sin of humankind. <laughs> Pass me the salt, hun, would you? Yeah, you remember when you told God that I was at fault for all of humanity's fall? So like salt or probably not. <laughs> for those of you just starting off, do you really want to start, maybe not 930, do you really want to start the next 30 years of your married life by holding on to something that probably wasn't even just her fault to begin with anyway. I don't know. I don't have to solve that because it's not the sermon for today. The question though before us this morning is where are you? I mean, that's what God wants to know. He wants to hear it from your words. He doesn't become walking around in the cool of the, of the day, he doesn't become any less omniscient. That is to say, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't suspend his knowledge of creation and all of it. He knows that something profound had just occurred. He knows who is at fault. He knows what it's going to cost him to start putting it all back together. And he still offers that invitation, where are you? Just tell me so we can clean it up together. You know, that's so amazing to me that God could ask that, that couple who was at fault for introducing all of sin and humanity, eternal sin of humanity into creation. And he could be so kind and be so gracious and so non-accusatory and just invite the response, invite the relationship, Lord God, to say, where are you? I think a lot of us, if I were to ask you, can you imagine a story? Or, or do you believe the story 
whereby God's two crowning jewels over all creation that were supposed to image him in every way possible fouled everything up so badly that it would cost God his one and only son a death on a cross of all places. And do you believe that God, knowing all of this, would choose to pursue them, seek them out, relentlessly seek them out from hiding, and invite them to simply answer the question, where are you? Do you believe in a gracious God like that? And I think the majority of you would probably say yes, and then qualify it with, for them. Because if I were to ask the question, do you believe that whatever you're hiding, whatever has driven you into hiding, do you believe that God would seek you out, relentlessly seek you out from hiding and and would invite a relationship with you? You'd say, no, not me. I'm special. I'm so far from God's loving arms that he could never wrap them around me. I want you to take this with all of the love and the grace that a pastor could offer a church. What makes you so special? (laughs) But think about it. Nobody is beyond the relentless search of God. It's what he does. It's the story he tells. We hide, he seeks, he relentlessly seeks us out from hiding. In fact, when his man, a prophet, Jonah, gets on a, gets on a ship and starts heading the wrong direction, God so relentlessly seeks him out of hiding in the bottom of that ship, he sends a storm and a fish to make sure that his man comes back into his hands, his fold. When, when God has 99 found sheep, which is an A average in any class you're probably taking, but one of them goes missing. It's God who walks out, who journeys out at night into the wilderness to find that one sheep that went missing because we hide. He seeks, relentlessly seeks us out of hiding. When he's got nine perfectly good coins in the bank already, He turns over the tables and turns the lights on and calls his neighbors because he has to find that one that went missing. Friends, you're the one that went missing and he is relentlessly seeking you out of hiding this morning. When when a man has, when a father, when God has two sons and one of them is a screw up and goes away, but then gets his head together and finally comes back. But but the other story, I mean, the other son, the older son is so, doing. It is like brewing outside of the party and he doesn't want to come in because he can't believe that his father would would have such compassion on such a screw up like that. It was the father who goes, it's God who goes out to that son and begs and pleads with him to invite him. Just tell me where you are and come back into the feast that I am carrying on because I am a God who relentlessly seeks you out of hiding. When the woman comes to the well, Jesus meets her at noon, the hottest part of the day. And she goes there because because she's been married five times and she's with number six and trying to make him husband number six. And she just can't handle another sideways glance or a passive aggressive sigh. And so she would rather suffer from heat exhaustion every single day than, than than to be cast into that place just one more time. Except Jesus sees her and he knows her. And he loves her. 
And he relentlessly seeks her out of hiding. And my favorite story is when Jesus' friend Lazarus died. This is the power that shame, the power that hiding has. When Jesus' friend Lazarus gets sick and dies, Jesus shows up for the funeral days late. And there's, and there's still mourning and there's still weeping because they're still so sad. And Jesus himself is stricken with grief and he weeps along with them. Except for when Jesus decides he's in the place of being able to do something about this. He walks up in front of the tomb where they kept him. And he says, roll the stone away. Now I preached a lot of times about what happens next, but never about that in-between part. Do you remember the objection that Lazarus' sister gave him? He knocks on the stone. He, doesn't, he says, roll the stone away. And she doesn't say he's dead. And, and she doesn't say the stone is heavy. It'll take a lot of people to move. She doesn't say anything about letting the dead rest in peace. She doesn't even say, Jesus, dead men don't walk again. She says, and I love the version of the, of the 400-year-old King James version of the Bible where it says, Lord, he stinketh. He smells, Jesus. He's been dead for days. We bandaged him up. Jesus, whatever's in there, like I don't want to be exposed to it. I don't want to smell that. I don't want to roll the stone away and to see what's in there. And I think, friends, there's a lot of people where you've got some stuff hidden away in a tomb and, and Jesus is asking you this morning to roll that sucker away and you're going, I don't want the smell to get out and infect the people around me. I don't want them to know what's behind. I don't want them, them to experience the shame or the guilt or the fear or whatever it is that I have. But the thing is, friends, is if they never roll the stone away, Lazarus stays dead. And so do you really really want to let your fear of the stink of who you are or what you've done keep you from the life that Jesus offers. I want better for you. We've been in a series now for about five weeks called I Quit. And so what I'd like you to do in the seat back in front of you is, or underneath the chairs in the front, is to pull out one of these cards from the seat back. Go ahead right now. I'm, it's cool. I'll wait. Oh, we got time. And there's a prayer request spot and a praise report, just some lines. And I just simply want to invite you to write down whatever it is that you're going to quit in order to more fully follow Jesus. Maybe at our very first week, you heard something about quitting the excuses that we make. And, and the excuses are always that later will be better. Now isn't a good time. I have too much to lose. There's always a good excuse. And maybe God is asking you to do something this morning and you've always made an excuse not to. What's your story of just quitting the excuses? 
following after the life that Jesus has for you. Maybe you've been playing the comparison game for way too long and your eyes have always been fixed on that thing or fixed, worse yet, on another person and saying, why not me? And those words of Jesus to say, listen, you can keep your eyes fixed on him and you'll be miserable. And Jesus says, or put your eyes on me and I will give you a satisfaction and a life that you could never dream of before. And maybe you're ready to quit the comparison game, the comparison trap. Share the story with us. People need to hear it. We would love to hear it and to celebrate what God is up to in your life. Maybe God is asking you to quit complaining. Quit complaining about her or him or them. Quit complaining about your kids. Quit complaining about your friends. Quit complaining about your boss. Quit complaining about your work. Quit complaining about your church. Quit complaining because God brought you here for a reason. It was not to grumble, but it was to grow. Share your story with us about why he brought you here. Or maybe this morning he's calling you out of hiding and he's saying, I don't wanna, I don't wanna lie. Whatever's in there, it stinketh. <laughs> but on just the other side of that tombstone is the face of Jesus in a life you couldn't imagine. Most of all, maybe you're ready this morning to quit doing life alone. You're tired of being in the driver's seat of everything and just watching it fail and you're ready to turn it over to God. There's a little box in there that says, I made Jesus my savior today. Subtext, I quit trying to steer the direction of my own life. I'm ready to hand it over to him. What are you quitting in order to more fully follow Jesus? I'm gonna pray for you right now for courage in these moments. There's also a team in the back by the prayer banner during this last song, during this time of silence. Absolutely go back there and, uh, and, and be prayed over. Whatever's in there, whatever's hiding, whatever you need to quit, we can't do life alone. Let's pray together.